Well, we continue our study of the book of Hebrews as we come to chapter 10, which focuses on the supremacy of Christ's sacrifices over the Old Testament sacrifices, over the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Now, once again, we need to remind ourselves why the writer of Hebrews is taking all of this time uh, to compare Christ uh, to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant. Uh, you remember in chapters 1 and chapters 2, his primary point was that Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Testament prophets and to the angels. In chapter 3, that Jesus is superior to Moses, uh, the greatest leader in Israel's history. In chapter 4, that he's greater than even Joshua, who led them into the promised land. In chapters 5 through 7, that he's even greater than Aaron and the priesthood that was established through Aaron. And then in chapter 8, we saw that Christ's new covenant is built on superior promises than the old covenant. And then in our last message in chapter 9, we saw that the new covenant worship is superior than the old covenant worship. And then today we'll see how Christ's sacrifice is superior to the animal sacrifices. And, and again, why the comparison? He was writing to Hebrew Christians. Uh, the folks that he was writing to had all come out of Judaism prior to their conversion. Their lives had evolved around the temple and around the Old Covenant rituals and ceremonies and animal sacrifices. And as believers, they were wondering, now, well, do we have any obligation still to the Old Covenant? And then even on top of that, as we've shared, uh, they were struggling with persecution. Uh, they were under fire. And uh, it was very frightening at this time to be a believer. And many of them were even tempted to retreat from Christ and to go back to the old Judaism. And so the writer found it very necessary to show them how much better Christ is than all of that. And how Christ now has made obsolete the old covenant because the old covenant was merely what? A picture preparing us for His coming. And now that He's arrived, we let go of the pictures and we embrace the reality, the real deal. Now, as we move into chapter 10, it's important to see that the first 18 verses simply review the main points the writer has made in the previous chapters. And why the review? Because beginning at verse 19, chapter 10, verse 19, the writer comes to the very climax of the book as he begins then to apply the truths that he has shared. What difference should this make in our daily lives, the fact that we have Christ and this much better uh, new covenant? So uh, I hope you picked up a copy of uh, the sermon notes, and so you follow along as we begin by being reminded of the inadequacy of the Old Covenant sacrifices in verses 1 
through 4. So follow in your Bibles, and let me begin by reading these verses. The inadequacy of the Old Covenant, or the inadequacy of the animal sacrifices. Verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, the old covenant sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Why? Because, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, in these verses, we basically see four reasons for the inadequacy of the Old Covenant. And the first reason is right there in your notes. They were a shadow. They were a shadow of the good things to come, but not the actual substance. They weren't the real deal. Therefore, they could never provide access to God. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, when Kathy and I were, were dating, uh, several months prior to our wedding, we were separated uh, up until, I guess, just a couple of days prior to the actual ceremony because I was involved in a uh, ministry in uh, New York State. And uh, during those months of separation, I had a picture of Kathy that I absolutely adored. It was, it was just an old black and white picture. I don't know, even know if she remembers what the picture was. It was just a, a casual picture that was taken of her uh, uh, out on the football field uh, where we attended uh, college uh, together. And I loved and I, it. It, it, it sort of became a pre-wedding object of worship for me. And uh, I was working with uh, physically and uh, mentally limited uh, children and I would uh, get them in bed at night, and then uh, the only place I could go where there could be some light and I would not disturb the children would be uh, the bathroom. And uh, I would take her picture with me, and, uh, and I'd write her a letter. I wrote her a letter virtually every night during that uh, period of time. But then that day came when we stood before family and friends and committed our lives to one another, and she became mine. I didn't, any, I didn't uh, any longer have a one-dimensional picture. I had the three-dimensional real deal. I had the woman that lived, that talked, that laughed, uh, that I could embrace. So what happened with the picture? Well, it got very little attention at that point because why? I had the real deal. Well, say some days following, I came to Kathy clinging to that old picture. And I said, you know, dear, I've really missed this picture. And, uh, and I think I'm just going to go back to the picture. And I, I just love the frame. I, I just love the beauty of this picture. And, and I clutch it, and I kiss the, the, the glass. Uh, now, what would you think of me? You'd think, Pastor, you're crazy. You know, you, you're absolutely crazy. And, and that's the point the writer is making. 
The Old Testament was a beautiful thing. With all of this comparison, we don't want you to have the idea there's, there's anything bad or wrong with the Old Covenant. No, it was beautiful. But it was simply providing what? Pictures pointing us to Jesus who would come. Jesus, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. The second reason for the inadequacy of the Old Covenant sacrifices was that they required repetition, but provided no remission from sin. They required repetition, but provided no remission from sins. The latter part of verse 1 says how the same sacrifices were offered, what, year after year after year, and how those sacrifices could never make perfect those who drew near in worship. In other words, that word perfect, teleos, it means that those sacrifices could not fulfill God's intended purpose for man. They, they could not restore man in his relationship with God. They could merely point to the one who eventually would. And it is very obvious that with the old covenant animal sacrifices, the people never felt that the price of sin had finally been paid completely. I mean, if they had, they would not have repeated the sacrifices year after year. After all, you know, you don't keep on making monthly installments on your mortgage if your house is completely paid for, right? Now, verses 2 and 3 give us another reason for the inadequacy of the Old Covenant sacrifices. They maintained a consciousness of sins, but no cleansing from sin. They maintained a consciousness of sins, but no cleansing from sin. The, the point is summed up very well in verse 3. It says, but in those sacrifices, referring to the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, there is a reminder of sins year by year. In other words, instead of the animal sacrifices removing the stain of guilt on their conscience, they only serve to remind the people of their guilt and the fact that they could not enter into God's presence. Remember, we've seen this in our previous messages. The, the, the common person in Israel, he couldn't even go into the holy place, not to mention the holy of holies. And remember, we shared only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, and he only could go one time of year on the Day of Atonement, and that was the high priest. So in the Old Covenant, there was no direct access to God's presence for the people because those animals never could remove the stain of man's guilt. Every single animal sacrifice cried out for a permanent solution to man's problem of guilt before God. And then this brings us to the conclusion in verse 4. You can't state it any clearer than this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, all those animal sacrifices, to take away sins. You know, it is estimated that in the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem, as many as three 
100,000 lambs were slain during the week of Passover. 300,000 lambs slain during the week of Passover. The slaughter was so great, the blood would run out of the temple ground through specially prepared channels into the brook Kidron, which seemed as if it was what? Literally running with blood. But even a river of blood from animal sacrifices could not take away the sins of God's people and bring them into God's presence. But what could not be accomplished by hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices was accomplished by what? The one sacrifice of Jesus Christ who bore our sins to pay for the penalty of our debt and to impute His righteousness to us. And this brings us right to the second point in your sermon notes. The old covenant sacrifices have been set aside by the one sacrifice of Christ. The old covenant sacrifices have been set aside by the one sacrifice of Christ. Again, follow in your Bibles, and this is the focus of verses 5 through 10. Verse 5, Therefore, when He comes, talking about when Jesus comes into the world, He says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, referring to those animal sacrifices, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Verse 8, And after saying, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, what will? The will of Jesus Christ who voluntarily died for you. By this will, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy. We have been set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And all God's people said, Amen to that. Amen and Amen. Now look at the next point in your sermon notes. Let me just try to simply break this down. When it says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, it means the animal sacrifices had no power to satisfy God's justice against sin and provide forgiveness. As we've seen, their only value was to point people to Jesus the Lamb of God who would come into the world to take away the sins of the world. Now, going back uh, again to the picture illustration that I gave a moment ago of, of Kathy, the animal sacrifices were a picture of what could be. Their purpose was to create an ache in the human heart. Their purpose was to create a longing for the coming of Jesus. 
Now look at the next point there in your sermon notes, that next little paragraph. When it says, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them, referring again to the animal sacrifices, it means God could not take pleasure in those sacrifices who all died, what? Involuntarily. In stark contrast, Jesus offered His body as a sacrifice in devoted submission to His Father's will. And herein lies the power of Christ's sacrifices. Think about that. Every one of those animals that was put to death died involuntarily. They didn't wish to die. But Jesus left heaven and came to this world in human flesh... For one purpose, that He would die for you. That on that cross, He who knew no sin would become sin. In those moments on the cross, He became all that you are, bearing your guilt and your sin, in order that He might satisfy God's justice against your sin. In order that He might pay the price of the penalty of your sin, that he might endure the punishment that you deserved. And then he rose again to impute to you his righteousness. What an amazing truth. That our debt has not only been paid in full, he not only wiped the slate clean, but then on top of that, he actually imputed, he actually deposited into our account All the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's how God sees you and I as believers. He sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we come to God now, not on the basis of our own righteousness, not on the basis of works we have done, but on the righteousness of Christ, which becomes ours through faith in Jesus, as we place our reliance in His finished work. Now look at the next point. Because of Christ's will being submitted to his Father to the point of death, again, just a stark contrast to the animal sacrifices who died involuntarily, but now Christ is a man dying voluntarily to the point of death. We, again, are sanctified. It says we are made holy or we are set apart for God's intended purpose. Again, look at verse 10. By this will, the will of Jesus We have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Folks, this is something the law could never do. Now, the law could set you apart to be shunned. It could set you apart to be stoned. But it had no empowerment to fulfill God's purpose. In truly forgiving you, wiping the slate clean, imputing His righteousness to you, and giving you a right standing before God. Look at the third truth in today's message. The old covenant priests have been set aside by the one priest seated and enthroned at God's right hand. Now keep in mind as we walk through this, we're still in these first, what, 18 verses. Everything we're seeing... We've seen in previous chapters. All of this is review from the writer's perspective. And here in verses 11 and through 14, he's reviewing those earlier portions in the book where he talks about Christ's priesthood being superior than the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament. 
So follow along as I read verses 11 through 14. It says, And every priest, referring to those Old Testament priests, stands, what, daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by, again, look at the emphasis again. Compare this to verse 10. For by one offering, he has what? Perfected. He is made holy. He is made righteous for all time those who are sanctified. Notice, notice the simple contrast between the Old Testament priest and the priesthood of Jesus. The Old Testament priest offered repeated sacrifices day after day, year after year. Jesus, in contrast, offered what? One sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself. The Old Testament priests, it says they stood what? Daily. They stood up daily indicating their work was what? Unending. Remember when we looked at this earlier in our study? We talked about one of the interesting pieces of furniture that is absent in the tabernacle is what? Chairs. There's no chairs. Because there was never an opportunity to rest. Because it was an unfinished work. It was never completed. But Jesus, in contrast, is what? Seated. Indicating what? The work is what? Finished. Those last words he cried from the cross. It is finished. Meaning what, literally? Debt paid in full. Nothing left for us to do but what? Believe. To trust to put our reliance in Him. The Old Testament priest, as we see, labored on earth. But Jesus is what? In a heavenly tabernacle, seated at God's right hand in power and glory. The Old Testament priest offered sacrifices that could never take away sins. Jesus' sacrifice achieved its goal and made us holy forever. Once for all. Look at the fourth truth. Because of the adequacy of the provisions of the new covenant, there is no more sacrifice for sins necessary. Because of the adequacy of the provisions of the new covenant, there is no more sacrifice for sins necessary. You know, humanity has been likened to a man who fell into a well. As he treaded water, fearing that he was about to drown, he, of course, was crying out for help. Responding to the call, a passerby stopped, leaned over and asked the man, what do you want? Well, the man said he wanted out. Well, the passerby thought a moment, and then he wrote on a piece of paper, and he dropped it down to the struggling man. And you know what was on the piece of paper? Ten rules on how to keep you out of wells. Now, folks, that is a great 
That is a great illustration of the type of help the law in the Old Covenant gives. It's prescriptive, but it was never curative. It, c- it could never bring the final answer, the, a cure. It can advise us on how to keep out of wells, but it is powerless to let down a rope and save the drowning man. But in the New Covenant, we are introduced to the only individual who is able to lean over, lower a rope, and pull us out. Amen. And, of course, that is Jesus Christ. Again, we're in the first 18 verses. This is still a review from the writer's perspective. And this is a a wonderful little summary of uh, what we looked at, especially in verse 8. It was also touched on in in, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9. Look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, which is a summary of the new covenant. Let's just remind ourselves, when we say new covenant... We're talking about the testament of Jesus, the last will and testament of Jesus. And a testament is not effective until what? The death of the one who wrote the will. So when we talk about a new covenant, we're talking about the promises that Christ has guaranteed will be the inheritance of every believer. And it's ours by virtue of His death that ratified the covenant, ratified the... And God the Father and the Holy Spirit are the ones who guarantee its application to our lives. And, And here's a summary of those promises. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart. And upon their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, what he does, when we looked at the new covenant in chapter 8, we saw basically... Four promises. But he sort of summarizes it up in the, in, the, in, the, in the two things that are at the very heart of the new covenant. And get them down in your notes. And the first is empowerment. Empowerment. Something the law, the old covenant, could never provide. Look again at the end of verse 16. I will put my laws where? On their hearts. And upon their mind I will write them. Notice... That little paragraph, now under empowerment. Having God's law inscribed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, God Himself, who has taken up residence in our hearts, as opposed to an eternal standard, and I'm sorry, external standard is what I meant, written on stone, is the primary difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. The New Covenant provides both the motivation and the power to walk with God. Folks, this is absolutely glorious. And again, it is the fundamental difference between the Old and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you had God's law, again, inscribed on stone... But there is nothing offered internally to man 
so that he could please God and find God's favor. Matter of fact, as we've seen, all he got was a constant reminder of what? His sin, his guilt, his evil conscience. The fact that the access to God's presence was closed to him. That's all he got in the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in the heart of the believer. And as he takes up residence in our hearts, he writes God's laws. He writes God's truths on our hearts and on our minds. He provides not only the motivation, but the energy, the power to walk in that truth. To live a changed life. To begin to walk out that holiness that has been secured for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a a glorious truth, this empowerment. You know, and Jesus hinted at this in John 15. Looking forward to that day of the new covenant, he said, I'm the vine. And what? You're the branch. We've been united And yes, apart from Christ, what? We can do nothing. But now we've been united in Christ. There's nothing impossible for us. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So now I come to Jesus. I ask these, Jesus, fill me with the sap of the Holy Spirit. Let that sap flow through this branch, bringing spiritual health bringing fruit, letting Christ's life be reproduced in me and through me that others might find nourishment, that others might be fed, that others might find my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first and glorious truth of the new covenant is empowerment. That God now does for us what we could never do for ourselves as He comes and takes up residence in our hearts. And then, of course, the next truth is the reason all of that is made possible. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. The debt has been canceled. There's no barrier now between us and God. Look at verses 17 and 18. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, beloved, listen to me very, very carefully right here. The reality of God's forgiveness delivers us from the mentality of serving God out of a feeling of failure to measure up. I don't need to measure up because Christ measured up for me. And through Christ, I have God's favor. I have God's pleasure. I have God's love. It's not anything that I can earn or deserve. It's something that's mine by virtue of a free gift, an unmerited act of God's grace on His part. And it delivers me from living life from a legalistic checklist of rules and regulations, thinking the better I conform to this list, the better God will like me. See, now we serve God simply what? Out of gratitude, out of delight, out of love. 
because we have been forgiven, because we have become the recipients of His grace. And folks, this has such power. Let me, let me just, I'll be just very transparent. Let me just give you a little example. But this, I think it'll speak volumes. I'm at the grocery store the other day, just picking up a few groceries. I'm walking to the grocery stand, and all of a sudden, a very vile thought came into my mind. Now, folks, I could have I thought, you know, goodness gracious. You know, yesterday, yesterday I celebrated my 44th anniversary to coming to know Christ. I came to know Christ on September 20th, uh, 1970. And, you know, I could have thought, goodness gracious, been saved 44 years, I'm a pastor, and, and, you know, that's all I am. That's what I am. But, folks, did I do that? You, you know what my exact response was? God, thank you that your blood has cleansed me, that your blood has removed the stain of guilt from my evil conscience. Thank you that my sin no longer is an obstacle between you and I. Thank you that I can come right now into your presence to draw on your resources, your empowerment, to turn away from those thoughts and put my thoughts on the righteousness and purity of Jesus Christ and please and honor Him. And that's how we need to respond. See, we are constantly bombarded with temptation. We're constantly bombarded with thoughts of, uh, you know, bad thoughts, bad attitudes, bitterness, anger. You can go on and on and on. And see, let me tell you what the devil's little trick is. When you become tempted or that vile thought comes in or you're tempted to get revenge, you're mad, you're angry, bitter, whatever it might be. Or it could be worry, it could be anxiety, it could be depression. It could be a million different things. Whatever. The devil will step in and he'll begin to condemn. He'll begin to judge you. He'll begin, you, a Christian? You saved and you're thinking like that? You have an attitude like that? You can actually be tempted by that? You're acting like that? Or let's, let's say worse, you, you fail. You fail in the temptation. Well, see, the devil will come in and he, his primary goal. See, so many believers think the devil's primary goal is to trip me up and cause me to fall into sin so that I lose my testimony, my opportunity to have an impact for God. Now, that's very true, but he has, there's something even behind that. His ultimate goal is not just to get you to fail in sin. His ultimate goal is when you do fail, or when you do have that vile thought, for you to lose confidence in God's grace for you as a sinner. For, for, for you to begin to think, because I am thinking this way, or because I've done this, I no longer have access to God. And God is saying, will you please believe me? Did Jesus bear your sins on the cross or not? Did he pay the judgment or not? 
then is there a barrier or not? No. And so now we have the privilege to come with honesty, to come with sincerity. Yes, God, that was a vile thought. Yes, God, that was not a good attitude. Yes, God, I did fail, but thank you there is forgiveness. And thank you that I can come and confess my sin. Thank you that I can come not only confess my sin, but to draw upon your life and love to turn from that sin and be a changed person, to be a different person. So look at that little note there, sums it up. Sin no longer is an obstacle to an everlasting covenant relationship with God. The people of the new covenant enjoy unhindered access to God's presence. Now, the fifth and last truth, and I'm just going to basically give you the outline. I'm going to pick up right here in the next message. Because, folks, verses 19 and 25 is the very climax of the book. It is the very heart of the book of Hebrews. Everything the writer has said through ten chapters, he has said to bring him to these verses. And that is that Christ's sacrifice opens the way to God. Look at verse 19. Since, therefore, see, okay, in light of everything I've said, since, therefore, brethren... We have confidence to enter the holy place, that's the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, referring to his death. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? The day of His return. Now, notice what He does in these verses. The first thing He gives us three facts that can be just counted on. I mean, these are iron-clad Facts, unchangeable facts for every believer. And you see it in his use of the word since. You know, since, since. And then he moves to certain commands in light of those facts. Now, what are the facts? First present approach in verse 14. I love that. He says, since therefore, brethren, we have. Right now I have confidence to enter the holy place. Well, I don't know if you're hearing. Right now we do. I don't care how miserably you have failed God. I don't, as a believer, I don't care where you are at. Right now, you have confidence to enter the holy place. See, believers, we have a real problem here with our Christianity. We spend so much time looking back to the past, what Jesus accomplished, and looking forward to all that is ours in the future. We often miss what is ours right now. And I'm telling you, you have the present approach 
to God. You have access to Him right now. Even in your failure, even in your sin, if you're willing to simply come with what, as we're going to see in a moment, a sincere heart, just honesty, transparency. In other words, He's already taken care of your sin problem. If you're willing to accept that and believe that and accept that forgiveness and come to find it as a parent. And then, verses 19 and 20, perpetual access. Not only do I have presence, access to His presence right now, I have access to His presence, what? 24-7. 20, again, folks, just think of the glory of this in, light, in comparison to the Old Covenant. We're just one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, and only the high priest could he go into the presence of God. And even then, they'd tie a rope around his ankle with bells, so in case they, they heard the bells stop ringing, they knew he had died in God's presence, and they could pull him out. Because they couldn't go in to get him, because it died too. But now, you and I, any and every believer, we have access 24-7 right into the very presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have perfect assurance because when we come, who do we come to? That great and faithful high priest who died for us. Remember all the things we learned earlier in the book? Who can sympathize with us in our weakness? Who understands our struggles? Who understands human frailty? Who is prepared not to judge you, not to condemn you, because for all that are in Christ, there is no more, what, any condemnation. Because the judgment's have been paid. So he's there to what? To give mercy. To give you what you don't deserve. He's there to give you grace. Unmerited favor. As you come to him. Now, in light of those facts, he then there says, we have responsibility as believers. We have, Jesus has restored us to a relationship with God. And any relationship, it's a reciprocal, it's always a reciprocal relationship. No no relationship is totally one-sided. So God, yes, has taken the initiative. He's provided all of these wonderful things for us. But He says, but you have responsibility, and here are the fundamental commands. And this is, in essence, the whole of the Christian life. And what God expects of a believer. What is it? First, let us draw near. You know, he says, goodness gracious, if I've forgiven you, and if I'm offering you empowerment, then would you please come? Would you just please come? Will you please believe that I have forgiven you? That there's now no barrier between me and, and you? But when we come, he does say we're to come with what? A, did you notice it in verse 20? We're to come with a, I'm sorry, in verse 22, we're to draw near with a what? Sincere heart and the full assurance of faith. You know what a sincere heart is? I think of the Beatitudes which says, blessed are the what? Pure in heart. You know what a pure heart is? You know what a sincere heart is? It's simply an undivided heart. A single heart. In other words, Jesus is saying, I offered myself for you. I paid 
your sin debt to God. I imputed you to you my righteousness. And now all I ask is would you please come with an undivided heart because I am worthy. I am worthy of your allegiance. I'm worthy of your love. And folks, this is not the language of duty, it's the language of what? Delight. To draw to Him with that sincere heart. And that is an exercise of what? Faith. It really boils down to that. I mean, it really comes down, when you think about it, what is greater in your sight? Now, I mean this. I'm going to put this in the simplest terms I know. What is greater in your sight, your sin or the blood of Jesus? It's just that. I mean, you're either going to let your sin keep you from drawing near to God. I mean, the obstacle's been put away. There's no barrier. So if you don't come, the problem's not on God's part. It's on your part and your unwillingness to believe what He accomplished for you through His death. Through his blood. And so that's all an exercise of faith. Will we truly believe that he's forgiven us? Will we believe that he's ready to receive us in mercy, to give us grace in our time of need, even in our time of failure, to provide an empowerment to walk a new way? But then he says, not only are we to draw near, we're to hold fast. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. So here's an exercise of hope. I know that as I come, I have an anchor for my soul in that holy of holies, and that is Jesus Christ. Remember when we talked about uh, uh, in an earlier chapter that he's not only given us his promises, but he has sworn to keep his promises that by those two inalterable things, his promise and his, his, his uh, oath, that we can have confidence to come to that anchor behind the veil to be met by, again, love, mercy, and grace. And then what's the third responsibility of the believer? Let us stir up. Look at verse 23, let, uh, 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling together as the habit of the Son, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And here's an exercise of love. So again, Jesus has removed all the barriers. He's forgiven us. He offers us an empowerment. And so He asks us to exercise in light of that faith, hope, and love that's rooted and focused on Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see as we move into chapter 11 and 12, that hall of fame of faith, how all these individuals put their faith in Him and His promises. And we're to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and come boldly. And, and just notice the emphasis I, I, on that last point is never on what you can get out of church, but what you can give to the church. Amen? God never wants a believer to be a mere spectator in the life of the church. He wants them to be a participant. He wants you to be involved in utilizing your life and your gifts in stirring up others, stimulating others to love and good deeds, encouraging others. That's why we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as it's the habit of some. 
but we're to come together to love one another, to fellowship with one another. Father, thank you for the just marvelous, unspeakable truth uh, of this message. I've tried to speak it, but Lord, it's beyond my ability to, to communicate. Uh, Lord, I am totally dependent upon your Holy Spirit uh, to take the uh, truth from your Scripture and to penetrate the hearts and lives of these that are here and uh, speak uh, to, to them and to draw them uh, to yourself and that you would open our eyes to see all that is ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, so, Lord, as we enter this time of invitation, may we truly worship right now. I don't know any other response than we can give to this message than to worship, than to praise you for your unmerited favor, for your forgiveness, for removing all the barriers and providing us access access to God, which in Christ's name we pray, amen.